0: Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. (sighs) Anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee, you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ads are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. Acast Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad free, and for a bonus, my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to Acast Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek!
1: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend.
0: Hello and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens and My Time Capsule is the podcast where people choose various things to go onto the menu that they... Oh no, that's a different one. No, this is the one where they choose things to put into a time capsule. Five things from their life... They can pick anything that they want, but it has to be four things that they cherish and one thing they'd like to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the actor, presenter, writer, and producer, Gordon Kennedy. Gordon began his career in the early 1980s, working in theatre before transitioning to television in the mid 90s, although he has occasionally still done some theatre. His most notable television includes the Channel 4 comedy series Absolutely, which aired from 1989 to 1993. He also co-hosted the original Lottery show alongside Anthea Turner, and in the late 90s, he was cast in the role of Little John in the BBC's hit series Robin Hood. Since then, Gordon has continued to work in both television and film, and with his company, Absolutely Productions. He has appeared in a variety of shows, including the role of Sergeant Bruce Hornby in the BBC drama Red Cap, He was in The Deal, The Halcyon, The Windsors, Endeavor, that's a show that doesn't begin with the, Vera, Harlots, Being Human, Sherlock, Red Dwarf, and even The Kenny Everett Show a long time ago. He was various voices in the cartoon series Stressed Eric and was the voiceover in the long-running US series Ramsey's Kitchen Nightmares with Gordon Ramsay. He's appeared in films such as The Borderlands, Tank 432, and T2 Spotting. The BBC radio series of his hit TV comedy show, Absolutely, with Peter Bakey, Morwenna Banks, Maury Hunter, John Sparks, and Gordon himself, is now available as a three-series audiobook at Google Play, Apple Books, Audible, and others. Right, that's the plug out of the way. Now let's discover what Gordon Kennedy, one of Scotland's most talented actors, will choose from his life to put in a time capsule. Here we go. Have fun. How are you with your delicious coffee? I'm very well. Colombian. Freshly grown. I don't know why I still drink really shit coffee. The whole idea that you actually eat and drink things from the other side of the world with sort of (laughs) impunity... It's extraordinary, isn't it? And it
2: comes, it's so it reached its vanishing point in coffee when you have the most right on people in the world all drinking coffee that's been flown halfway around the world. What are we like? <laughs> anyway, um, I got an electric car recently because I just thought our car was virtually dead mm-hmm. and an embarrassment to our entire street. So, <laughs> so I got an electric one. And then about two days after I got it, and I was feeling almost at my most smug, I got in a cab an electric Addison Lee cab was Mm. at the house. And the guy literally for the next half hour told me why he thought it was a shit idea to have an electric car.
0: (laughs) You know, he knew his stuff and I didn't. It's not the perfect world, but it is a world we should be aiming for though, isn't it? Because uh, that's definitely where I'm going next. I am not going to buy another petrol car.
2: No, no. I mean, to be fair, we were doing our bit for environment because we had a 2006 Skoda Fabia that refused to die. And I've got a little driveway. So I thought, well, I can put a plug in there and it's not a problem. And they're very expensive, so you don't buy one. You just do it on the never-never and you don't worry about it. What make is it? It's an it's an MG. Oh Ding dong. <laughs> yeah. So I've got my leather gloves with a string back. Of course, yeah. I absolutely love it. I mean, it it drives me to distraction. Going from a car made in 2006 mm. to a car made in 2023, it's kind of like having a, a landline phone going straight to an iPhone 14. <laughs> it just does things. I mean... We've had it since November, and I kid you not, last week, uh, Susan had her phone out and she chucked it in the bit in in between us in the the console in between us and it suddenly started charging no (laughs) unbeknownst to us it wirelessly charges mobile phones for you (laughs) oh my god I mean apart from all the stuff when you're driving on the motorway and suddenly it doesn't let you change lanes because you haven't put your indicator on or it puts a warning sign out because you're too close to a car and all that stuff but very interesting. my first thing I'm putting in is car related oh right brilliant I'm sort of going in chronological order and then the last thing Thing is the thing i detest that i want to bury yeah fantastic Good. okay so let's find out what the first thing is you want to put in the time capsule um yes well the first thing and, and obviously when you say capsule i'm i i need a shipping container <laughs> I, i'm sure i'm not the first but there, no some of these things are quite big um <laughs> so this is the second largest thing i want to put in the time capsule okay and it's a white renault four Mm-hmm. Now, a Renault 4, for people that are too young, is the sort of quintessential eccentric French car. The French always just build cars that are just different just for the sake of it because they just don't want to be the same as everyone else yeah. which is fine and the Renault 4 although it's not as well known maybe as the De Chavot and the, the bouncing ball car is the quintessential one of that because it's just full of eccentricities um, now my mother had two or three of these cars when I was growing up um, mm. she was a, a proper maniacal driver she was known as <laughs> by because she was sort of known on the local streets as the white tornado because this car <laughs> would come go past from anywhere anyway but it was <laughs> it was the car it was the car i learnt to drive on and therefore you sort of hold a, a special place in your heart for the car mm. especially in my situation because i lived about 10 15 miles outside edinburgh and i was at school in edinburgh so all my friends were in there so when i passed my driving test and was able to drive as opposed to get the car it was just like It was just like getting my freedom at last I could do this.
0: Did you shout, take my life,
2: but you can't take my freedom. (laughs) Exactly. I I stood on top of the car, unfortunately, because I was wearing a kilt in traditional manner, so I was (laughs) a (laughs) wrestler, and and shouted that, and nobody listened. Nobody cared, (laughs) frankly. Because
0: it was before the film would come out.
2: Exactly. It was many years before that. I was a genius. (laughs) It was extraordinary. I used to talk about Star Wars back then. Didn't happen for another 10 years. Um, But anyway, yeah, so I learned to drive. And I'm pretty sure the reason I passed my driving test, because I'm afraid I was inspired by my mother's style of driving. So as a learner driver, I was kind of, you know... Bit bit weird and a bit hard on the accelerator, but <laughs> one of the biggest eccentricities of this car was that the gear lever came out of where the ashtray used to be in cars. It came out yeah. right in the middle of the dashboard, in the weirdest place possible, and it was a little kind of U bend of sort of steel that kind of went out and moved around. And my driving test. Examiner was utterly obsessed by that and just watched it the whole time. He didn't see any driving. I don't think he'd ever been in a Renault 4. And of course, the other thing about the Renault 4 is it's got quite soft, bouncy French suspension, the hydro, what they called hydroelastic in the day. And of course, that is even better because that, of course, was making him feel sick. So he was feeling like vomiting. <laughs> he was obsessed by the Geely. Eventually, he just, like, we basically drove round the block in a town called Harrington in East Lothian, um, which doesn't have any traffic anyway. As a market day once a week. The rest of the time, it's abandoned. And he basically drove around the block. He said, well done, you've passed, signed the thing and then went out and vomited, I think. (laughs) So that was the first thing that happened with it. But then the other thing was my mother at the time worked for the Family Planning Association, which was at that time was a very kind of revolutionary sort of charity. She was a nurse, a qualified nurse. And basically the Family Planning Association was lobbying the NHS to give out contraception free. So she worked in that. But obviously at the weekends I would get the car. And Mm. one time I got the car and I I was at a disco at a rugby club and I got the dream... I wasn't drinking because I was driving... And I was sober, so I was able. My chat up lines were reasonable, as opposed to just dri- dribbling, <laughs> which is what they were when I was oh, normally after a game of rugby when I was drinking. <laughs> very lucky this girl, um, you know, I started chatting to her, and then I offered her a lift home, and she said yes. And I thought, well, this is this is all going very well. And I ushered her into the Renault 4 eccentric car. She thought this was interesting. But I took her bag and just I just threw it over the back seat, and it went into the boot, and that was all fine. And we all, off we drove. And then we got to her house and I said, oh, I'll, I'll get your bag at the back. Now, the important thing to know in the back, the Renault floor is like an estate car and the tailgate opens up and the floor is flat, level with the, mm. with the tailgate, so there's no lip. So I opened the boot of the car to get her bag and lifted the thing up. And what had happened was all the stuff that was in the boot already had moved around and fell out onto the road. And all the <laughs> stuff was about five thousand condoms (laughs) a box full of iud coils and then (laughs) with hilarious comic timing a stethoscope fell onto the the road (laughs) And, and i sort of grabbed her bag and said here's your bag and i said shall i come shall i come hello Hello? (laughs) And, I mean, what must she have thought? I like his confidence. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Well, I'm not sure she did. I, I never saw her again. No understandably if you're listening i can only apologize but the reason was that my mother which i never got to tell (laughs) her
0: so she just finally it's explained yeah this girl's been hiding ever since
2: i do wonder if she ever like when i was doing the lottery and stuff which was like you know bbc one mainstream wonder if she ever saw me and recognized me and thought I could make a lot of money out of that story. But she never did, so bless her. So that's, my, that's the first thing I'd like to park.
0: Oh, what a glorious thing. Yeah. I love Renault 4s. I've always loved them. Fantastic. I owned one. I owned one in France. Oh, all yes. right. Oh, no, that's much better than me. It was a green one, so not quite all right. the same. But I loved the gear stick. I mm. loved the fact that, as you say, it was a forerunner. I mean, you would have been regarded almost as a minivan, wouldn't it? Because yeah. it was a forerunner of a hatchback. Yeah, 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 completely.
2: And and that's the only way it came. It didn't come in any other form. That was it.
0: No. And the great thing about that thing opening up is that when it opened, it was sort of the whole back of the car lifted up, didn't it? Completely. I once planned that I would travel around France and put a bed in the back of one of those. But you could. Mm. I didn't. Uh, the condoms got well, in you know, Imagine if you'd had a bed <laughs> in there and the condoms. <laughs>
2: No, I think
0: then I would have been arrested.
2: That would have been a change that would have been a change change your life. But it was fantastic because our family, I was the smallest of uh, three brothers in our house who were all playing rugby, playing a lot of sport. So my mother used to sort of empty Asda sort of twice a week and put all the shopping in the back and get it yeah. out. But it was it was it was a fantastic car. But only recently I was talking to somebody about the Renault Fords and he said, Do you know that one of the front wheels is three inches further up the car than the other one? <laughs> and I said I didn't, and I and I said why? And he said I've looked it up, and there is absolutely no reason that anyone can remember or find. It's not an axle because they're individually sprung, which gives you all that space, and one of them is slightly ahead of the other one.
0: <laughs> That's very French.
2: <laughs> exactly. Very French. Just because we can. Fantastic. Yeah. No, I, I I absolutely loved it, and it and it was at times coming from where I lived in in East Lothian towards Edinburgh which is where I did most of my driving there's a bit of the road that was really exposed um, sort of mm. coming downhill we were up higher and it was coming down towards Edinburgh and when the wind blew and people were in the car because <laughs> you, you didn't notice it but you did, you had to sail it you know you were steering <laughs> into the wind and of course I was used to it but people in the car used to be genuinely a little bit afraid of it going what's going on because it would be battering about <laughs> it.
0: and that's the difference between England and Scotland isn't it yes when you have wind in Scotland it <laughs> yeah. really does blow it's car. Shifting
2: okay. wind. Well, certainly Renault Four shifting wind. That's for sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Well, I am going to take that beautiful white Renault Four and put it in there. Great, it will be pristine. I, I promise I, you. I wouldn't. think so.
2: I, I think. it yeah. I think it should be. Uh, well, that's great.
0: Lovely. Okay, what's
2: number two? Well, number two is is the smallest. Actually, is the smallest object, uh, and it, it's a silver Indian rupee. And this is for two reasons. And the first, I better get this in now because I know my wife will be listening to this and I haven't (laughs) mentioned her so far. So the first reason for the rupees, because our honeymoon uh, in 1992 was in India. And Mm. uh, I absolutely fell in love with the place and uh, loved everything about India. And the rupees is relevant because... Susan's father was uh, was a doctor with uh, Shell, so she was well-travelled. Although She'd travelled all over the world as a schoolchild, you know, coming back and mm-hmm. forward from England. Uh, I hadn't really been out of our continent, so to arrive in India was an extraordinary sort of Event for me. But it was the only place I could guarantee that Susan really hadn't been in the world before that we could get to reasonably in a honeymoon. Yeah. So we booked up this thing and I, and I said, you know, our first honeymoon night has to be in the Lake Palace Hotel in Udaipur, which used to be the Indian advertising. It, it was a big white hotel in the middle of a lake. Oh, and, beautiful, uh, yes. And so we found this brilliant little tour company that, that managed to fit everything in for us. But we arrived, you sort of fly through the night to, so it's like going from New York to London, but the other way So we arrived in the morning and we were taken out to a hotel just to relax because the flight wasn't until the evening down to Udaipur. Uh, And so... I, you know obviously as a husband being scottish and extremely stupid i thought i'd just take charge of all things to do the honey you're my wife you just sit there my darling, it's fine mm-hmm. uh, and what i'm going to do is i'm going to just cash a couple of travelers checks and we'll so we have cash because we must have cash just in case we needed one or you know blah 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 so anyway i went up to the concierge in the hotel and i wrote a, a couple of travellers' checks i think two for 25 quid so it's 50 quid mm-hmm. and the guy spoke impeccable english said oh thanks very much so that's great let's put that down passport that's lovely and And he went under the counter and he picked up what could only be described as a brick. Okay. So if you imagine the dimensions of a brick, and he put it on the table, and there was a massive lead staple through. Twenty rupee notes rupees (laughs) it was literally eight inches long and six inches tall the size of a brick the proportions of a brick and then again just with impeccable comedy timing he then just put a note and a coin on top of it so it was like it was 50 million and four rupees was whatever you know and of course I couldn't get the checks back so I got this and sort of walked over to Susan (laughs) rather sheepishly and said what is that lump in your trousers because I know you're not pleased to to see me and i had to pull out this brick and i kid you not three months after our honeymoon we got one of the bags out to go somewhere else and we found some of these rupees that were stacked because we just you had to unpack them and stack them into every place you could you'd spend the whole holiday counting them <laughs> I just... Absolute nightmare. And of course, we're staying in hotels and rest, and we didn't really... We we used a bit of cash for tipping, but we would have had to have been very generous to get rid of that minor free piece. And so it was literally... Start, we spent about an hour, first of all, bending this lead staple so we could get it out, yeah. and then just taking wads of these notes. And, of course, having no idea... I mean, they could... I mean, they, as it turned out, they weren't worth were very much, even in India, but... Anyway, but, I mean, the guy must have just laughed because <laughs> he, he... And he probably had lots of 10,000 rupee notes, yeah. but he just said, no, you've just arrived,
0: you need to be embarrassed. <laughs> uh, and, and I was. Also, 50 quid is quite a lot of money for a lot of people. Exactly,
2: exactly. And that's the thing. And it, it, it was that weird... Sort of connection with India. We, you know, we, we, we were staying in these amazing hotels, but then part of the trip was just going out into the, into the towns mm-hmm. and cities and exploring them with guides, sometimes history teachers and, and stuff like that. But it was really interesting. We just learned so much about all the different areas. But of course, the other thing was, obviously, having just done a Channel 4 show, I thought I could not be more right on. <laughs> and the one, thing, the one thing I was not going to do in India was play the colonial, you know, card about, you know, getting people. So we were always very differential to everybody. We were always very polite. Mm. And it was all fine <laughs> until about, I think it was toward. we were there for about three and a half weeks and it was sort of the the last airport we arrived in. And because there was a politician on our flight, normally the people would just come in and let, almost meet us off the plane and be carrying everything. We were going, no, 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 don't, we'll, we'll carry, we we'll carry. But they were consistent, <laughs> carrying our bags to the car and stuff like that. But this time obviously they didn't arrive and the bags came off the trolley and I remember looking around at Susan going oh, where's the driver and Susan just looking straight at me going hmm <laughs> interesting what happens in India isn't it it was just the most embarrassing thing luckily no one else saw it apart from Susan
0: mm. I've never been to India well I've been to Delhi
2: airport and that's about it No, that was my first experience. We arrived in Delhi for the day. I'd done a film with an actor called Susan Woolridge who'd done like Jewel in the Crown and and all that sort of... So she'd spent a couple of years on and off in India working. Mm. And so I said I was planning to do this and she spent a day with me going through her favourite things. Mm. And she said, these are the 10 things I think are my favourites. Do no more in three weeks, do no more than four of them and don't go to the big cities. Uh And it was the best advice because the big cities are a little bit swamping mm. I mean we went through a few we went to Rajasthan we did uh, down in Kerala and we did a tiger reserve where they did in fact where they designed all the stuff for the jungle book Right. you know the sequence in the falling apart temple mm. with, with King Louis that was actually in Ranthambore which is where we went and you could see it, it was up on top of a hill so you could actually see it silhouetted it was amazing wow. and you know it was just beautiful mm. but India is a continent it's not a country so you know we just dipped in and out of the three or four areas we went to and I always wanted to go back, and we haven't gone back, but I, I, I do want to go back mm. because we never went to the north because it was it was very shut off at the time, and there are right. times when they open it up to tourists because Kashmir apparently is extraordinary. It's very like Scotland, you know, in the, and the Alps because it's hilly and and it's quite cool, the snow capped mountains and stuff.
0: Just to basically look up at Everest. Is an extraordinary isn't it? In the distance.
2: Yes. I saw it when I was coming back from Malaysia once. I was flying on this beautiful, clear day. Uh So you could see the Ganges Delta there. And I saw that. And you could see Calcutta. And then I looked up. And the brilliant thing about Everest is it doesn't disappoint. It's just like somebody's just plonked a mountain of the wrong scale amongst a lot of other mountains. (laughs) And and I remember looking at the plane for hours. It was just the most beautiful sight. And it was absolutely clear all the way up to Nepal and and
0: Everest. Wow. so did you say there were two reasons why you had the rupee?
2: Yes. So the mm. other the other reason is because the Calcutta Cup, mm-hmm. which is the cup that Scotland and England play for annually as part of the Six Nations, the one that
0: Scotland seems to own at the moment.
2: Yes, and, yes, we do own it at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, is made of melted down silver rupees. Is it?
0: Yeah. Oh.
2: so it was made entirely from uh, the silver from silver rupees. That's why it's called the Calcutta
0: Cup. And you're a big rugby man, aren't you? Massive, massive. Mm. And
2: um, in 1984, uh, I was still based up in Edinburgh, and I played rugby at quite a reasonable. I was playing for Watsonians, which was in the Scottish First Division, mm. with my brothers who were older than me, but they were they were still playing. And my middle brother, Ewan, who years before had been tipped for international stardom and then had basically blown it in the trial match, and so he hadn't played, he got his way into the Scottish national team in 1984. And against England, he scored a try in front of me when the clock end, what used to be called the clock end of Murrayfield. Mm. And... It was an extraordinary moment for two reasons. First of all, it was my brother and I don't remember the rest of the game because I had my back to the game and I was just <laughs> screaming at 40,000 people, that was my brother! <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. But the best thing about it was that um, Murray Hunter, my fellow absolutely, had gone to the toilet at halftime and didn't make it back <laughs> to see it. <laughs> so he came back and he realised something had changed <laughs> because I had a smile that was almost as wide as the stand and was just going like this and just was quite hysterical but the brilliant thing about that event was we were already thinking we were going to be going down to London to seek our fame and fortune in the entertainment industry I Mm. suppose and it immediately took not right that day that day I don't really remember very much after it but but thinking about it afterwards it took the family pressure off me entirely for my life because it would not matter if I had gone on to win seven Oscars, (laughs) directed the best film in the world. In an instant, I knew that nothing was ever going to compare and I wouldn't want it to, to my brother scoring a try against England on the way to Scotland's Grand Slam. Wow. So, uh, And that was the first post-war Grand Slam. So my, my brother only actually had... Five caps, because he got injured in the England game and didn't play oh. for Scotland again later. But he, he had five caps for Scotland, which included a grand slam, but also a draw against New Zealand, which was the only time Scotland's ever drawn oh against God. New Zealand. <laughs> so it's but then of... looking
0: back to those Halcyon days, and thinking, oh, yeah. if only we could get Kennedy back.
2: Yeah, you know, absolutely. So um, I mean, he, he he recovered from his injury and he played a bit more. It was just such a fantastic thing because he'd felt, and we all thought that he'd missed his chance of being capped because yeah. he just he just had an off day at a really important time, and other people came in. But then injuries conspired to, to mean that he came in. And his partner in the in the backs played for the same team as us. Long, he was there for a long time, and he played for the
0: same team as us, and I think that helped.
2: But, yeah, no, it was just an extraordinary thing. It's amazing um, to reach
0: that level, though, isn't it? Yeah. I did a television thing once, and I had to uh, shake the hand of Kenny Logan, Gabby Logan's husband, <laughs> and i shake the hand and slap him on the arm as if we were old mates. That was basically what the scene involved. And I shook his hand. And hit him on the arm, and both my hands ached for ages afterwards.
2: He's a Stirlingshire farmer. I mean, that's uh, what he was before he started, because he, he was right at the beginning of the uh, professional era. Mm. So he's from farming stock. So he probably worked as a boy in the farm. But yes, no, he's he was, it was a like big, hitting was a big brick big wall.
0: It was absolutely yeah. ridiculous.
2: Yeah. No, I mean I, I loved it and I loved playing. And then when we came down to London, when we all came down to London to sort of start working, which is going to eventually end up with absolutely, I played a bit of social rugby, but I did. I just I didn't particularly enjoy it because we. It's a, it's such a different game because you can't you can't really stand that line out and say I'm an actor, love so not the face. I mean, it just doesn't doesn't <laughs> really they work. Would immediately um, go,
0: really yeah, and it,
2: yeah, and it really doesn't work in the Scottish borders in particular. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't work. You you go down to Gala Shields or boy not the face love laugh. <laughs> um so that's so that was the tie up with the rupee yeah so i'm sort of cheating i've always got a cu- i've got a couple of memories with lots of these things sorry i'm cheating no it's but...
0: fine it's one thing but it reminding you of a number of things that's great yeah. yeah
2: yeah yeah
0: yeah um how lovely that he's actually held those rupees
2: <laughs> absolutely well be, because there's because his, his centre partner who played for our club and, and our club was walking distance from Murrayfield. Mm. So afterwards, the atmosphere in the cl- the clubhouse was like, I mean, how it didn't burn down that <laughs> night just with joy, <laughs> I don't know. Because it was amazing. And obviously, because they were, they were at the team hotel to start with. So the rest of us were the stars. My my mum and dad and me and my brother, yeah. the Kennedy family was as close as they could get to the God that had been created that afternoon. Mm. So we didn't put our hands in our pockets and I probably drank more that day than I've ever drunk in my life. (laughs) But I didn't get drunk. There was so much adrenaline pumping through us, Mm. apart from the fact that on top of everything else, we suddenly thought... Actually, the Grand Slams on here, we were good enough to do it because mm. we'd beaten England, who were absolutely unbeatable at the time. Yeah. So it was just so exciting. <laughs> and then uh, we saw you in the next day, and they were all up doing press stuff, so they were all pictured with the Calcutta Cup. Mm. So I, I'm pretty sure I, I might have held it that day, actually. Really? Was the only time. Yeah, but then the, the, next, the next Grand Slam. The next Grand Slam time that we beat England at Murrayfield, John Jeffries, a very, very good uh, wing forward and, and great, great servant for Scottish rugby, was seen with, uh, I think, David Solence and, and an English player kicking the Calcutta Cup <laughs> down Princess Street, very, very drunk, but it got dented and they had to repair it. And uh, oh, Well, there is no proof that it was John no, Jeffries. no, I'm but- sure he didn't do it. No. I'm, pretty, I'm no. pretty sure he did. Um, <laughs> they just held it very carefully and, and did that, but it was, um, no, it was great. Oh, fantastic. Uh, very good.
0: Uh, what very a good. thing to be proud of. Yeah. Well, we we'll put it in to remind you of a fantastic honeymoon and also of your brother's success. For such a small thing, a little tiny silver rupee. OK, what's number three? OK, sorry for the interruption. We'll be back with Gordon very shortly, but first, here's a commercial break.
1: underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer budget-friendly flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment the plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals so for whatever tomorrow brings united healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you learn more at uh1.com
3: Spin your passion into a business of shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout let's hear that one more time
0: And that's the way to cheat the lottery and get away with it. Anyway, welcome back. If you'd like to hear what I've just been explaining, then you can listen to this podcast without ads through our ACAST Plus scheme. Details in the description of this episode. But now, here is the lovely Gordon Kennedy and the rest of the things he would like in his time capsule.
2: Uh, Number three is a cricket ball. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I was trying to think of a way of having mentioned my wife i need to talk about my children and one of my fondest memories sitting where i am now in fact because we we built an office on top of the of the last 3 yards of it our garden was almost the right size of a cricket pitch uh-huh. So I spent my life throwing cricket balls down to the boys. The eldest one, James, is a was, is a very good cricketer, mm. and Patrick, the younger one, because he was the younger child, and I knew this because I was the youngest child, was just forced to do it. But he
0: he, he did it
2: to be fair to him. But we used to have great fun in the garden playing cricket and losing cricket balls, which is the yeah. thing because James eventually uh, got strong enough that he started hitting the balls over the house from the back of the garden. Oh. So at that point, I kind of thought, and we we'd broken a few of our windows. But- not not too many. Uh, and it was, it, what was brilliant was as soon as something like that happened, when James really hit the ball, Patrick, James and myself, would all become four years old, even though we were, he, they were in their teens and I was 45. And we basically all go, just waited to hear the voice of authority from the house going, God! <laughs> stop it you know whatever it would be um, sorry mum yeah so it was a very bonding experience with my children yeah. that we were all being naughty at the same time and we were sort of and when we did break a window we would all be standing in the middle of the garden with our heads down getting lambasted uh, publicly <laughs> in front of all the neighbours for doing it did you never think of putting nets up no that would have been cheating and also where's the joy in hitting it into a net when you can hit it over a two story house I mean True. I think I can see why James is doing it yeah. but anyway it was very fun time and obviously See now they're um they're grown up, and in fact I've, one of them's got their own child, so I've just become a grandfather, oh, which brilliant. is slightly I haven't really got used to the fact that I'm a father yet, so it's
0: a, it's a bit of a catch up. Mm. I found out today yeah. that you're ten days younger than me.
2: Really? All right, so you were very nearly a leap year.
0: Very nearly, yeah.
2: Yeah, because yeah. going back to the rupee, Susan and I got married on the 29th of February, nineteen ninety two. Oh did you which of course is two nine two nine two. That's oh, why i Brilliant. Was doing it there. Yeah. I'm obviously being Scottish I quite like the fact we we'll only have an anniversary once every four years <laughs> it's good um, I hope you yeah. get a
0: really fantastic present every four years Um I yeah, probably. I, I can't
2: but yeah, so so the cricket ball was partly to do with James and Patrick, definitely, mm. playing cricket with them. And also we used to have what they call an incredible, which is not a cricket ball, but it's harder than a tennis ball. So it's like a plastic cricket ball. Mm. And I used to spend hours bowling with this ball on the, uh, to the boys. Um, now, the second reason I've got a cricket ball is because of the charity that I'm a trustee of, which is called the Lord's Taverners, which is a cricketing charity. Mm -hmm. So they help kids suffering from any form of inequality, whether it's physical, mental, financial, social, whatever, um, through community cricket programs and we have great fun raising money for it it's it's a big charity now and it does a lot of uh, a lot of amazing work mm. right throughout the country you know with um, thousands of children being helped through this, the, the different schemes they do but obviously part of it and the fun part of it for us who are involved with the charity is we play cricket matches <laughs> against other sides for the Lodge Taverners Brilliant. and the first time I did this I didn't really understand it was a mate of mine got me into it mm. as a charity as a sporting charity so I was well up for it and then I was away making uh, Robin Hood for three years yeah. in the summer. So I didn't do anything for... For them at all, and I was sort of sort of saying, "Well, this is great," but I, I wanted, and said, "Oh, well, we've," got, and then when it all stopped, I I went out um, to play at Mill Hill. they were there were a game against a Saracens cricket team, right? So I, I went out, not really knowing what we're doing, and I, I knew there was a few showbiz people would be involved, in it, and I went into the sort of the marquee, and I saw Chris Tarrant. I hadn't seen him for a long time, and said hello, and we were chatting away, and somebody came up and said, "Don't worry about going out to play now. Uh, you're fielding, but we've got plenty of players, so you guys can stay here, and we'll sub you in." in a minute Mm. so I wasn't even really paying any attention to the actual cricket match so then uh, eventually after a half an hour we were chatting away and then they said oh you can go on now we will take two of the other players off so so we walked on and the first thing that happened was I suddenly realized that Mike Gatting was standing (laughs) calling me over right Mike Gatting said Gordon and I went Oh, hi. Hello. Right. Nice to meet you. And he said, uh, I've heard that you can bowl. And I went, well, oh, yeah, I guess. And he said, oh, Peter, give Gordon the ball. Peter, leave No. Right? So, uh, okay, thanks. That's very good. And then the umpire turned round to say, are you ready, bowler? And it was Mike Dines. Wow. Now, Mike Dines is the reason I play cricket, because he was a Scottish player that was captain of the English Test team. He was one of my sporting heroes, along with Jim Clark and a few other rugby players. Mm-hmm. They were my sporting heroes. And so <laughs> literally, I just said, can I just have a second? Because <laughs> 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 I thought I was playing with Chris Tarrant and a few other kind of comedians. Yes, and there was all these Test heroes of yesteryear all there. <laughs> (laughs) Of course, then I've got a ball. You can hardly walk. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Luckily, for whatever reason, I took two wickets. So suddenly everyone was going, oh, well, you're great. We we must get you on tour. And I've (laughs) gone, really, that's not... Anyway, so that was my first experience of the Taverners. But Mm -hmm. where this incredible comes in is we went to... Corfu to do a, a there's a literary festival so we had gone out there with a few a, a cricket team to play and be part of this literary festival mm-hmm. and raise a bit of money for the charity. And Corfu's really interesting because we're we're actually going back out this year because it's 200 years since the first cricket match was played in Corfu. And the cricket match was played in the centre of Corfu town, in this, like the green in the centre of Corfu town. And they still play cricket in there to this day. Now, the centre of Corfu is this grass circle, oval, surrounded by trees and bars and restaurants. However, about maybe... Ten years ago, they built a car park at the edge of it. So now, because there's cars there, they can't use a cricket ball, but they use an incredible, the (laughs) thing I used to... So we went out to play, and the first game we'd played, which we played at the proper cricket pitch out at the the marina, I'd really over-celebrated the night before (laughs) being in Corfu. (laughs) And I, I was absolutely appalling. So I hadn't really covered myself in glory the day before. And then we were playing this game. So I was out in the field and the captain, Neil Radford, I think it was, Mm. and he was a great player, but quite grumpy about the cricket (laughs) and certainly grumpy about this A Scottish B celebrity (laughs) that was in the team. Anyway, I was playing, but he wasn't playing in this game because he'd pulled a muscle. So he was captaining from the sidelines. But Chris Cowdrey, well-known with his very famous father, he was playing. And because of this incredible, the pros, when we were batting, they couldn't get the ball off the square. They just couldn't hit the ball because they weren't used to it they didn't know what it was doing and bowling was exactly the same so we'd scored in a t20 we'd scored about 108 runs or something like that (laughs) they weren't getting out but they just couldn't score runs and chris cowdery brilliantly said gordon you come on to bowl and (laughs) the captain from the bar was shouting don't put him on he's rubbish (laughs) literally shouting this to chris cowdery chris cowdery (laughs) said just give him a chance give him a chance and of course I got the ball and I remember playing with James I could swing the ball two ways I could make it dance Mm -hmm. so I came on two wickets and two overs we won the game (laughs) and Chris Cowdery and I waited and we were the last two to walk off the pitch just went past the captain going thanks very much Skip (laughs) he
0: was fuming of course yes
2: fuming the last person he wanted to win the game was me that is for (laughs) sure but that's just part of the real fun and games you get out of contributing to this amazing charity yeah. I, and, now, and now I'm
0: a, I'm very proud to be a trustee of it it has become a huge thing now isn't it
2: yeah and it's interesting because I, I trained as a PE teacher and t- taught as a PE teacher right. and the school I was at as I explained before was a big rugby playing and cricket playing school but sport was right at the centre and heart of everything they did mm. and you know the the education that you get through, especially playing team sports you realize when you've got it looking back on it you realize you've learned all these things I mean in a way a lot like acting where you're part of a team mm-hmm. everyone thinks it's all egos and you know the reality of it is you go into a thing the vast majority of people that' all working as a team with with the crew with the stage crew whoever it is mm-hmm. and it's a team sport and that's the thing that you can give to these people that just they, they're not getting anywhere else no. is that sort of lessons of you know team responsibility communication respect all that stuff Mm. that just happens you don't you don't have to teach it it just it has to happen as part of a functioning sort of game yeah and that's part of what the tavern is it's 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 basically just about empowering people Mm -hmm. and just sort of leveling the playing field with people that
0: have a difficult start do you think it inspired that wonderful program that freddie flintoff did
2: I think there are, I mean we're not the only people that do it there no. are lots of other programs around but yeah definitely that, that is exactly mm. what wickets is which is one of the three yeah. sort of programs that we do there's another one for uh, table cricket which is for kids with fairly severe physical disabilities mm-hmm. so they play wheelchair but it, you play it almost on like on a table tennis table yeah. and it's, it is I promise you it's one of the most addictive games I've <laughs> ever played in my life <laughs> it's absolutely addictive and then there's there's super ones which is kids with mental and physical disabilities but but are, is is run outside and and the, so they all do it mm. and they all have different you know that's the the thing they're concentrating now is is to try and get outcomes for them whatever it might be yeah. whatever their potential is you get them to realise that through sport and it's really interesting I think team games really helps that and I think it they realise that. It's not just them. You're part of a team in whatever you do, whether it's going on to work or coaching or playing games or whatever. Mm. There's just no downside to being involved no, in it. No, Other than sometimes it takes up a bit of time, but that's fine. I yeah, mean, it's, yeah. time, it's time for fun, so who cares? Yeah. You know? I
0: saw a bunch of children doing it just the other day, actually. I, I took my grandson to football training. And he's autistic, so he finds those team games difficult. Yeah. But he's managing to deal with it. But next yeah. to them, there were a whole bunch of children of all sorts of disabilities playing cricket indoors. They were having a whale of a time.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think... And there's a real problem... I mean, across the board, because I mean, even when I was teaching, they were withdrawing p e from the curriculum and it 's seen as a as an ancillary thing when people have to go through these terrible box ticking exercises mm-hmm. with you know with the with the assessment of the schools hopefully which is going to change now mm-hmm. you can 't look at education like that you 've got to look at the broad spectrum of it and saying. What are we giving these young people to go out into life? Yeah. And it's not a piece of paper that says they've been able to do calculus. That's part of it. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. But a big part of it is how they learn to be with people and interact with people and yeah. present themselves. And it, it will become a growing problem. And even more so with the fact that everything is much more, you know, focused on screens and social media, which is all solitary activities. Mm. These group activities are almost the only outlet where you're going to experience the frustrations and the and the joy of being part of something that's bigger than its parts, mm. which is what teams are, good teams are. Yeah. And I mean I I, I when I came down to London um with my eldest son who was quite keen on uh, rugby I took him to Wasps and eventually the the coaches all fell apart and I, I coached him and we had a, we had an amazing time and we ended up being a very good team and winning championships and all sorts of stuff and it was such a joy because I really thought that when I'd finished teaching and gone into what we all do that I would never experience that joy of getting a team and, and it's, it's like it's a bit of plasticine and you form it in the image that you think <laughs> you want it to be and, and all teams are different yeah. so it will never be the same but you know you you work out who your leaders are you work out who are the people you need to build up the people you need to keep in check and all that sort of stuff mm. and I loved it because as a PE teacher that's your meat and tooth edge.
0: Have you ever had that sort of experience directing or producing?
2: Uh, yeah I, but I, I don't I, I promise you I don't see any difference. No. Uh, but in, in producing it is exactly that you know you are building a team and if the team is positive and they're all contributing. You can tell. Mm -hmm. And funnily enough, even as an actor in in television shows, I think the same thing. I think if there's, I mean, gang shows are the shows that I tend to be in, so there's a big ensemble Mm cast. Things like Robin Hood is a very good example Mm -hmm. of that. And it was really interesting with Robin Hood's when we came back after recording the first series, we were in Soho doing some press because it was going to go out quite soon after we'd finished filming it, and we're doing some press. the 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 kind of the the, the sort of the gang, as it were. Mm. So there was myself and Jonas Armstrong, and we were all there, and they're all they're all quite young, and I I was sort of the older figure in that, so they, I was the one they always laughed at and <laughs> told to keep up and was wheezing behind them and all that. <laughs> anyway, we walked past the casting directors office in Soho and I said well we she go up and say hello to her mm-hmm. so we, we went and she was there and she all came in and, and we said just listen thank you it was just brilliant and we all got on very well together and it was all great and the casting director said yes I know and so the, one of the boys turned around and said what do you mean you know huh. and she said well I mean I don't want to blow your egos here but there were lots and lots of very good people up for all of your parts The reason I pushed you guys more than anyone else is that I knew you were going to a foreign country for six months, incredibly tense, with a big flagship show that none of you would have had experience of before. Mm. So it was important that you were going to be able to get on with each other and form a team. And she Mm. said that. And they were all gobsmacked because they obviously (laughs) just thought they're the next Laurence Olivier. But of course, that sort of decision is made all the time because I know from casting and being as an actor and also as a producer, there's lots of people can do... Lots of different parts. There's lots of very good actors out there, yeah, yeah. you know. But sometimes it's the mechanics or the challenges that that particular project will select one person over another person. Mm. And it was really interesting that that this was the ultimate gang show because it was Robin Hood's gang. Yeah. And she said, if one of you had been somebody that I thought wouldn't have worked, it would have been poison. And there were, she was absolutely right and it was a great kind of lesson for for everyone to learn (laughs) be be polite be on time and be a team player was the sort of lesson and
0: a pretty good one and carry a cricket ball I carry a cricket ball with you all the time. Yeah,
2: always carry a cricket ball. Yeah. No, so, so yeah, yes, I think you're right. And I think if I've got a talent as a producer, that's where the talent comes from, is from my training as a PE teacher, which yeah. may seem strange, but
0: I think it I think it is. I think it is. No, I think you're right. It's also knowing when to step away from things. Yeah. And also knowing when to shut up. I'm really bad at that. <laughs> um. Well, all right. We'll shut up about cricket balls then. And <laughs> put them into the time capsule. So you've got one more thing They're you in. want to put in because you like it.
2: Yeah. And this is the box set of absolutely. Now that may seem very egotistical, but the story behind the box set is weird because, I mean, you will know this too. We make things as actors and as producers and as writers, we make things all the time, Mm. but a lot of the time it's not a physical thing. And I'm, 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 I mean, incredibly scottish so i love manufacturing <laughs> you know so manufacturing television shows is is to me it's just like building ships except we don't use rivets well sometimes you do but you don't <laughs> tend to use rivets and whether it's producing or acting or whatever you're creating something then you're manufacturing something mm-hmm. uh but the problem with doing television and, and and theater is that you manufacture it it goes down a little tube and then it's gone and especially in channel four because they never repeated anything so we did, absolutely. And then we had a lot of conversations just because, I mean, absolutely was pre-social sort of media and the internet, really. Mm. Um, but by the sort of the mid-90s, we suddenly realised that there was a tribe of people out there that were really loved the show and watched the show. And as time went on, we suddenly had to start getting in touch with YouTube because people were putting on videos of Absolutely on YouTube because that's all they had. Yeah. And then we suddenly realised that what had happened was... But the VHSs that we'd put out, we put out two sort of VHSs which weren't very good, were running out. They were literally, the tapes were were running out and so people were putting it there was a community of all these people putting it on there and then we got in touch with a guy called absolutely andy who was a person who sort of coordinated a fan club which was i mean it wasn't that many people but it was all from all over the world Mm. and we suddenly realized then that we needed to get the whole thing out and this was just at the dawn so so vhs's had gone there was like two years and so dvds were there Mm. and people had done all the new stuff and were beginning to look around for what they called archive releases. Did you own
0: it at that point? Or was it a Channel 4 thing? No. No, no,
2: it's still Channel, it was absolutely Channel 4. So we went to see Channel 4 and they kind of hummed and hawed and he blatantly phoned up the person who ran the, dvd store in london where we have almost no resonance at all no (laughs) um and so he came back and said look i i I don't think so and i said well look can we do a deal where you give us the rights because i we think there's a market for this Mm -hmm. and so we did a deal and we went out and Fremantle bit our hand off because they were doing a lot of archive releases at the time they bit our hand off And so then we really got in touch with the fans and said, look, we're going to do a DVD release. What do you want on the extras? And we started asking them what they wanted. And they said, oh, we want to know the history of the show. So Pete put together this hilarious, entirely false history of absolutely made up with sort of newsreel clips and the Queen opening ships and all that, you know, just (laughs) utter bullets. But then we also interviewed a lot of people like Ian Hislop and... Uh, Paul Whitehouse and people about the about the show uh, and Paul Whitehouse couldn't stop laughing because he said that the greatest thing he learned from Absolutely was don't try and link sketches and he said that's how the first show came out. Right. We didn't have punchlines we just went from one thing to another yeah. <laughs> and it was all because we saw how brilliant it was when you did it but how you obviously had to manufacture stuff all the time because mm. it's a pain in the arse. So we did all these extras and then we released it and it was massive it went, we had launches in Glasgow and Manchester. But the most important thing, and I'll never forget the day, because the Fremantle people were so lovely to us and they, they got the designs and they asked us what we would want and it was all done. So the, the box set looked like it was in a, in, in wood. Mm. And I'll never forget the day they just they presented us with a mock-up of the of the show and I I got really emotional and I couldn't work out why and then I suddenly realised that it suddenly absolutely existed because it was there in this box
0: Mm, (laughs) it's a physical thing
2: yeah and I can't tell you why it made (laughs) me feel so emotional but it really did I just thought no that that feels right now because that, and it made me sort of celebrate it in a way that I'd never done before. You know, once we'd done Absolutely, we off, went off and did other things and I'd never really thought about it like that. Mm. So to have this physical thing, that's exactly what it was. This little box of the show was <laughs> fantastic. And that's why I would take, I wouldn't I wouldn't watch it because, <laughs> you know, I watch Absolutely like this. <laughs> but although actually one of the extras we did on it and again, I think this was suggested by somebody. I said to everyone, don't watch anything because what we're going to do is we're going to play an episode and we're going to do a cast and crew commentary, but we're going to film it as well. <laughs> so they'll have a box, they can either have a little box of the sketch and a big box of us, or a little box of us and a big box of the sketch. Yeah, yeah. But there's a moment during that a sketch starts with me and Murray, and Murray and I both look at each other, and neither of us have any <sighs> memory of doing this sketch (laughs) at all. So, I mean, blatantly it's not a classic, but people are laughing at it. I mean, it's not a bad sketch. And I'm saying, do you remember, do you know what happens? I've no idea. And what's weird is that there's bona fide, one empirical evidence there that
0: we've done this thing Mm. and yet we have no (laughs) cognitive memory of it. That's one of my favourite moments in the whole thing. You almost, without doubt, would have watched it thinking, there's going to be moments in this where we're going to go, oh, God, that's terrible. But it's lovely to watch those things and go do You know what this is this is quite funny,
2: yeah, I mean don 't get me wrong we you know there were four Scots in the room, so there was a lot of self flagellation <laughs> criticism going on i wouldn 't worry about that, but um yeah, no it was, it was very good and then and so that was done, and so we thought right that 's great we 've done that, and that 's the end of it and then of course, Gus Beatty from the comedy unit called up in two thousand and thirteen and said look we 'd love you to do um, some of your classic sketches on." Radio. Mm. And they wanted to do this thing where they would have a young sketch troupe and then have a few classic old, you know, sort of sketches. Mm. But the Olympics had been the year before. So we immediately said, we have to write something for Stony Bridge because everyone remembers the Stony Bridge Olympics. Yes. And obviously the first line is Brucey saying, I have some bad news for us.
0: <laughs>
2: and the, I mean, the police went up in an uproar when I started doing that. But we sort of realised that we had to do, uh, write, write a new sketch for that. But of course, all these characters like Callum Gilhooley and the little girl and Denzel and Gwyneth, mm. they'd all sat almost like ventriloquist dummies in suitcases silent for mm. 20 years. Mm. So of course as soon as he opened that Pandora's box, everyone was, yeah, I think Frank Frank Hovis needs to go and see his father in hospital. go, <laughs> oh, Yeah, I'd I pay quite a lot of money to see that, John. Off you go. So we did some classic sketches. Mm. And I mean it was just hilarious. I mean we 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 went up to Glasgow to the Oran Moor in Glasgow, which is a converted church, and the venue's in the crypt, so it's a fantastic comedy venue. Yeah. And we literally just thought nobody's they're not gonna it's 20 years ago we were doing mm-hmm. come on which is partly why we wanted to write new stuff and a little bit so then we, we turn up to the venue and we're ready to go and then the, the young troupe go out first and they absolutely smash it I mean they're brilliant they're really good really funny and I'm just sitting around going and, I, and I'm looking at them and going, they're gonna blame me because I was the one that suggested it this is all <laughs> you know and then they play the absolutely theme music and there's just this roar Mm. from an audience and it it was the most extraordinary thing and literally we all went nobody walked on stage we're sort of going Jesus and then we walked on so it looked like we were playing the audience and we weren't we were just going what the is going on (laughs) and then we walked on massive cheers sit down we we're about to do a Stony Bridge sketch. And then brilliantly, Murray then says, Sorry, I've forgotten my glasses. <laughs> if ever anyone wanted to see that time had passed, you know, five just past middle aged people walk on, and one of them's forgotten his oh, bloody glasses. Damn. And of course, Murray's microphone's on. So then we hear him being absent mindedly, <laughs> and, and the audience think this is a sketch. Yes. <laughs> so they think this is all hilarious, but of course for us it completely broke the ice. Thankfully, mm. and then we went on and uh, and and the and the reaction from the crowd was extraordinary. So the show went out, and then we had so much other material. We said to Radio Four, "Look, we can we'll, we can give you another half hour of ours, just of our stuff." So we did that, and that won a comedy award. Mm. And then we did three series, Brilliant. and luckily all three series and the special and a lot of extras that I won't spoil the surprise are um, are coming out next week but that that of course now we've moved beyond the boxes so that's just a, they call they call it an audiobook i mean i love the idea you're going to read absolutely but you'll be able to listen to all the shows which haven't been on sound so it's a it's a great uh, how brilliant! but that again that was just such a a bit like the coaching it was a marvelous thing to get this extra time on something i'd never thought we would do again no we were so lucky and i feel so lucky and privileged that we were we were given another chance to do it which was just and people really enjoyed it that was the thing because yeah. It wouldn't have been great if they hadn't, but it was just great fun.
0: Fantastic. Well, let's put the absolutely box set in. Lovely. Do we now have to put something in that you want to get rid of?
2: Okay, it's a lamp post, <laughs> uh, and it's a lamp post on Platt's Lane, which is a, a road that comes down from Hampstead Heath towards Kilburn. Mm-hmm. Really, so I'm a big outdoor swimmer i swim in hampstead ponds three times a week right and i cycle and it's it's a great workout because i from where i am we have to cycle up the hill as you do if you go to hampstead and from woolsdon it's just uphill all the way so it's a good workout and you come and then you come back mm. and one time i was up there and we'd gone for a swim and i was cycling back with another person who wasn't quite as fast a cyclist as i was and we were going down platts and i wasn't i'd put the brakes on because i realized that he wasn't going as fast as i was and then i looked around to see where he was and the next thing i remember was i was on my hands and knees on the ground there was an ambulance man there and i'm saying is my bike alright and they said no, no your bike's fine and i said good and that, me trying to get on my bike and they're going no 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 you can't you can't get on your bike you have come off your bike we need to we need to sort you out and then i looked around and i saw there was a sort of a crowd of people <laughs> including my friend who was saying just, I'll sort the bike out, Gordon. It's all right. And an ambulance with blue flashing lights on it. And
0: I, and you don't I remember just, that time change?
2: No. I, there's 15 minutes that I don't think I'll ever get back. Mm. But what had happened was that I think the road was quite wet and there was new sleeping policemen had been put in. And as I'd looked round to see where my friend was, I think I hit the side of a... A sleeping policeman. And so I leant over mm. to compensate for that. And this lamppost, I kid you not, it's right on the edge of the pavement. So I hit luckily I had a big urban helmet on. Oh yeah. And so I just put my head in there. So I cracked the helmet and then I had a compound fracture of my jaw. Wow. So it was only when I started talking to these people I realized that literally, literally, half of my mouth was sort of almost hanging on my on my jumper. And I was oh my chatting God. away. And I wasn't in pain. I suppose I was in shock. Mm. Then I realised, I, I, I said, actually, I think I've broken my jaw. And I, they said, we think you've broken your jaw as well. You need ah. to get in the back of the ambulance. But then, brilliantly, I got in the back of the ambulance. And this is such a kind of London joke, but it made me laugh even at the time <laughs> when the ambulance ambulanceman said, look, we're right in between two accident and emergencies. I don't think it's life-threatening, but we're right in between these two. So you have a choice. Which would you like to go to? Was it St Mary's or uh, Central Middlesex, I think, were the two? And I said, well, I knew St Mary's because our kids used to live in the A&E there when they were were younger Mm because he bashed their heads all the time. Uh, So I said, oh, St Mary's, to which they both completely unprompted turned around and went, correct, <laughs> which I just thought was hilarious. Yeah. I said, all right, so the rumours are true then. He said, no, no, we're not saying anything, but that's, that's, that's a good call. So then we go to St Mary's and obviously by this stage I'm on a spinal stretcher because they don't know and I've got the, the neck piece on mm. and all that stuff. And uh, we come out the ambulance and go in the emergency door, at which point, of course, I have a massive deja vu because I've done that twice on casualty. Uh, so I know what's going to happen. So nothing's surprising me. So this woman comes up and I said, uh, you're going to cut, want to cut my T-shirt, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> just, no. And so she cuts the T-shirt and I go in, go in the doctor and I do all that stuff and, and anyway. So I did have a fracture so my jaw had separated. So mm. it broken in two places. God. And then it could not have happened at a worse time because I was producing a radio show that Wednesday. So mm. this was on the Sunday. And then on the Thursday, we had a read-through and the next week we were doing a detective radio show where i was the killer uh. and i was producing it so we were then sent off to i think northwick park where they repair face stuff and then the next day i had a 4 hour operation and they put three plates in the in the in the jaw and stuff like that and then i, I was sort of 2 days in bed whereupon i basically I mean, God rest his soul, but I I basically ended up looking like Robbie Coltrane (laughs) because I just had this massive jaw and all the fluid and and then it all kind of dissipated. So I got Pete to look after the radio show on the Wednesday and then on the Thursday I said, look, we'll just try doing a read-through and if it doesn't work, we'll recast it. And I kind of got through it. And then the next Monday, we were doing this radio show. So I didn't have any time to think about it, which was great. Yeah. And it was all right. And as I say, I've got three titanium plates in my jaw. Wow. The only lasting legacy is I don't really have any sense of the, my skin. I can't feel my skin just under my mouth. So my wife has a secret code when I've got a bit of soup or food. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but that part's is fine. But I was, you know, and the, the, the people were fantastic. that did the operation and they sorted it all out and it was all fine. When I got my bite back and we went up to the pond's to swim again, this is maybe three or four weeks after the, the accident, mm. we got to the top of the hill and I turned around to my friend John and I just said, John, uh, you need to stay here for a minute because I've got to cycle... Very fast down this hill, otherwise I'll never be able to cycle down this hill again. Mm. So I did, I did, and stuck a big finger up at the <laughs> post on the way past because John did for me. I thought I'm, I'm going to be phoning your wife again, saying, you know,
0: well they do say, don't they? If you fall off your bike, get straight back on. Get, yeah,
2: yeah, but it worked because I'd done that. It was fine, and it's I've cycle past it all the time now. Yeah. I've probably forgotten which one it is actually.
0: It's the one that rather stupidly
2: has been put right on the curb, and it's right on the edge. The pavement. I mean, it's just asking for a very stupid cyclist to go out into it. But yes, so I'm going to put that under the Renault 4 and everything else. So,
0: yeah, brilliant. Very good. Well, I can't wait to get the copy of the book. <laughs> Listen through to all those wonderful programmes. Great. It's been absolutely lovely to talk to you. It's great to see you. Well, it's
2: been great fun. It's great fun doing this because obviously you remember things and the things that you remember first are, are the important memories. It was really interesting. Mm. So I, it's, it's good therapy for me, Mike, so um, thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think I've think i mentioned most people. I think there'll be lots of people who are saying oh, I see, so I'm not important.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad you enjoyed the therapy and uh, I suppose checks in the post is it absolutely absolutely there we are perfect (laughs) you have been listening to my time capsule with me mike fenton stevens and my guest gordon kennedy and that's really the end of this episode, although I'll probably keep talking for another couple of minutes about things like how grateful we are for you listening and how we'd love you to subscribe to the podcast, which you can do easily on any podcast provider. Also, how we'd appreciate it if you would rate or review the show. would be happy for you to follow and contact us anytime on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, and how you can download and stream the theme music by Past the Peas Music on Spotify, if you fancy it. I'll also be telling you, again, about the ACAST Plus scheme, where for a very small monthly fee, honestly about 40p an episode, you can get my time capsule without ads. Although, sadly, this waffle at the end remains. Still, if you like me rambling on, then hang around, as I'll also be telling you that this was a cast-off production for Acast, produced by John Fenton Stevens. And, let's face it, who would want to miss that information? Well, all sensible people, obviously, who have, of course, stopped listening to this and moved on with their lives. Still, for the dozen or so left, here is that information. Oh. No, hang on.